Father, we do proclaim the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, making us holy and precious children of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. For the second or third time, good morning. I'm going to ask you to open the Gospel of Luke this morning. Remember Luke? The Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Luke is the great journalist, the great chronicler of the life of Christ and the apostles, and this is the prequel to the sequel, which is, which is the book of Acts, which Luke wrote both, but of course this is his gospel record, and uh, we'll read from chapter 4 this morning of Luke, verses 40 through 44. Four verses this morning. And so Luke writes, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ." Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. All that we were there, O Lord, but we have Luke's record of it, and we ask you, to transport us there in our thoughts this morning, Father, that we might be one or a few among the multitudes who come to Christ for our healing, and we have presented our sick this morning, and we have received testimony of answers to prayer with our brother Donnie, and we praise you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord can heal, and he does. He is willing. It's interesting when you go, like, when's the last time I read four verses and preached on it? I always read a lot more. You were thinking that, weren't you? They think Dan must be tired this morning. What's that? Oh, it was five verses? Yeah, it was five verses. It's good to have a wife correct you publicly. Good to be corrected publicly. Keeps you humble. But um, even when it shows you can't count, that's good, too. It's always good. But, um, you know, it's funny. I, I had a whole longer thing prepared, but by the time you sit down and you cram and you start trying to develop and elaborate and elucidate these simple statements that are fairly self-explanatory, right? And you find that you're typing away and, you're, and your thoughts are coming up, and I do like to produce the transcript for you so you can have it in your home library and hard copy of the sermons. I have 26 years of them. Um, and I realize I, I come to the end of what uh, I normally preach in terms of length, and I haven't even uh, touched on the four or five verses at the beginning, so I cut out all the rest of the, I cut out all the rest of the uh, text to focus on these five verses this morning for you. And so we'll begin with verse 42 when we read, it wa- When it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. Jesus did that a lot in Scripture. He went out into a deserted place. There was one time when he went into a desert, which is a deserted place, right? And he stayed there 40 days. But he went out into a deserted place. Even the Lord, in his humanity, liked to be alone once in a while. And going out into natural surroundings is a good way to commune with God the Father. Even Jesus did that. And we read, but the crowd wasn't having it. The crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Well, isn't that what you would do? 
He was healing everybody. And it said anyone who had anyone who was sick. In other words, sick people couldn't go. People who had someone who was sick brought them there. And he healed them all unconditionally. I'm going to talk a little about that this morning. He healed everyone that came, it says in this text. In this particular text, he touched everyone that came. He laid hands on them. But these come out, Jesus is recharging. You've got to remember, Jesus is God, but he's also man. And he has a human body that tires and hungers and dies, right? So he goes out to this deserted place to pray, but they won't leave him alone. They follow him out there. There's other texts I've read in this Gospel Tale series where the, all the, uh, the disciples went with him, and they came out for all of them. They didn't even have time to eat, it said. They had to serve the people. But they tried to keep him from leaving them. Now, I've said it often enough. If you knew that a man was the Messiah, you would never let him out of your sight. You would stay there. We saw last week about the 4,000, and they came out, and they were listening to Jesus. They didn't know it would last three days. It lasted three days, and Jesus took compassion on them and provided them with some food, some sustenance, lest they faint on the way home, he said. So he's constantly caring for them, but they don't want to let him out of their sight. Not at this stage in his ministry. And so that's the case with this particular multitude. You ever notice in the scriptures, multitudes have sort of a psychological profile? Like some multitudes um, have the psychological profile of praise. Praise the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. The son of God is here. You know, they say all these things. Then there's this other one that says, give us Barabbas. You know, there's these different multitudes. Well, this is a multitude who saw what Christ did and really had faith and would not let him go and were chasing him down. And who wouldn't? Now, in the previous passage that I didn't read this morning, Jesus leaves the synagogue in Capernaum, and he leaves with Peter and Andrew. And it seems at this stage, these are the only two of the 12 apostles that have been called, because he calls the rest of them in the next passage, which I hope to deal with next week. So he's in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, you might remember, that's a famous synagogue in the New Testament. There's an elder there named Jairus. Remember Jairus? And Jairus had a daughter who was sick, and he came to Jesus, and he asked him to come home and heal his daughter. And on the way, the woman with the flow of blood came out, and he had to tarry with her. By the time he got to Jairus, the daughter was dead, and Jesus raised her. So Jairus um, and his synagogue are a very famous New Testament person and place, as is Capernaum, which is the headquarters of his Galilean ministry at this time. He kept coming back to Capernaum, to Peter's house, all right? So it was an extraordinary experience for them all when he, in that synagogue, rebuked a demon out of a man for the first time, and they saw this happen. And so we read, and they were all amazed, and they spoke among themselves, and this is what they said, what a word is this? He can command with his words, and even the unclean spirits come out. And so they said, with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. What a word. Focus on that. It's about the word. This whole passage is about the word. And we read further, and the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Remember I told you the ancient internet was called gossip? It went fast. Rumors, gossip. And the reason I say it that way is you know people color things with their own impressions. So I'm sure false reports went out or tainted reports. So he goes from synagogue to synagogue And then he goes back to Simon's house in Capernaum, and he famously heals Simon's mother-in-law. So he gets to Simon's house, that's Peter, right? And he finds his wife there and his mother-in-law lying sick. And Jesus and the disciples are very hungry by this point, so he has to heal her so she can get up and serve them food. And that's what he does. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and served them. That's what it says. She didn't just get up and say, 
oh, I, I thank you. I need a little rest now. I'm going to go on the couch. She got up and served. I mean, that's a healing. Oh, don't you wish Luke told us what they served? Now, while they're still at Simon Peter's house, the multitudes converged there. So they're in Peter's house. The, 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 the mother-in-law's healed. She's up serving them. They're, they're eating. They're hungry. They're, they're, they're men. They've gone on a journey. And going on a journey in, in those days meant you walked, right? No trains, no cars. So they just won't leave them alone. So they're in the house again, and they're trying to, you know, recharge and eat some food. And there's simply too many urgent needs among the people. And they know how to get healed. Just go to him and ask. He didn't turn anyone away. And he's clearly shown himself for who he is. And at this point in his ministry, it seems there's no question about his power and his authority. And so we read this. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Now I would say... If this was a, a political polemic here, this would be the time to announce his campaign. Very popular, right? I think we know that isn't what this is about. Now, not everyone knows. We know, because we have it written and we read the end. But they didn't know yet. And so he laid hands on everyone, and demons came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God, and he rebuked them. Now, why would he rebuke them for telling the truth? Because God will not be proclaimed by demons. In fact, if you want to know the truth, God does not want to be proclaimed by angels. If he did, he would have. But he chose you and me to do this. And that's what we're doing. He did not allow them to speak, for they knew he was the Christ. Isn't it interesting? A demon just looks at it. We have to wonder, who is this guy? Even John the Baptist. Are you the one we should look for, or should we look for another? But the demon knows right away. God walked in the room. The demon's inside the man. He knows right away. He's inside the man thinking, I hope he doesn't see me. But Jesus could see him too. He was Lord in both realms, visible and invisible. So the Lord and his first two appointed apostles are traveling about the countrysides. They headquarter in Peter's own home. And so after going for some days from city to city and healing and exercising demons, he returns there, presumably for some rest, and that brings us to today's message. And so we read that he departed to a deserted place. I assume it was to pray. Jesus departed periodically to pray. We see that in Scripture. Or maybe our human Savior just needed to rest. Or maybe just to pray and rest and gather his thoughts and his strength. But the crowd was relentless. They saw the miracles. They knew their long-held infirmities could and would be healed if only they could get into the presence of Jesus. He's over there. Let's go. Maybe it was a neighboring town they came from. Jesus said in the case with the 4,000 that some had come from afar. And they'd never make it home without food. So word spread. The crowds increased. The fervor intensified. So much so that we read, and they tried to keep him from leaving them. I can imagine them grabbing onto his robe and tunic. Lord, please don't leave us. You know, remember in the Samaritan village that happened? They didn't want him to leave. The, the woman came in and told, the, and told the story. So who wouldn't try to keep him? Who wouldn't try to keep him? Consider the, consider the change in those communities. Consider the change. If Luke is accurate in his assessments, and we know that, we know that that region was rife with lame and blind and deaf and sick and demon-possessed people. There were many. They overwhelmed the house. In fact, they overwhelmed the house so much they couldn't get in. They broke through the roof and came in, remember? So imagine these communities with all these sick and troubled and crippled people, and he heals them all. What must that community look like afterwards? It's hardly imaginable that anyone there 
who was in any way physically or emotionally or psychologically deficient could simply come out to him and be made whole. But that's what happened. There's no mention in the passage of faith as a condition for healing. I just want to point that out. It says everyone came. Now we could say that for them to recognize Jesus as the healer was the exercise of faith. They fully expected that he had the power to heal, and that was certainly evidence of faith. But what we do read is that everyone who came was healed. That's what we read. Every one of them was healed, Luke writes. So why would anyone stay home? I mean, why would anyone stay home? We, there's several stories in the New Testament of people who kept seeking cures and couldn't get them and got worse. And years went by. The man at the pool of, the Beth, of Bethesda, 38 years. The woman with the flow of blood, 12 years. And she went to the experts and only got worse. Why wouldn't you come out if the healer was in town? So it's no surprise that the multitudes came out then. And all one had to do was to limp or to crawl or be carried to him on a litter. And they would walk home unaided. They would walk home in their own strength. They would be healed. I can quite imagine that the road would have been littered with old crutches and canes and uh, ace bandages and uh, probably little bottles of pills and things. You know, didn't need it anymore. Yeah, masks. Masks would have been all over the road. Everyone, COVID's gone. The Lord's here. <laughs> you know, they would have been out there. Um, why would anyone have stayed home? They were living in a time, friends, when medicine was in its infant stages. We might say its ancient stages, all right? And that's not to say they didn't have some effective cures. They did. Some homeopathic remedies. There's certain things that they did have. But they didn't have a cure for blindness. Neither do we. We have some treatments. They didn't have a cure for leprosy. Certainly not for harassment from demonic spirits. But friends, leprosy was rampant, so rampant that whole colonies had to be set up to quarantine those who were infected. Laws were written to keep infectious diseases in check. Those who suffered from these restrictions and at the same time broke those laws were subject to severe punishment, as if ostracization and, and they, was not punishment enough. But imagine these whole communities now healed of all this stuff. And then of a sudden, most, if not all, of the residents were free from their ailments and made whole. Think of whole communities. Think of a whole society reveling in their newfound health and spiritual freedom. They all knew this. Now, i got to tell you, I've known Jews all my life, and I still do. And I can say from experience that Jews love an occasion to rejoice. And they're usually noisy rejoicers. Remember David's dance when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to the city? Do you remember that from 1 Samuel? We read this. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to see me dance with all my might. Some people didn't want to see David dance with all his might. In fact, when David dances, his, uh, his wife, Michael, who was Saul's daughter, who was Dave's enemy, David's enemy, saw the, saw the sight, and she complained about the dance as David's indecency. Well, see, the thing was, he didn't take time to dress. The ark came down the street. He just went out, and he had this little linen thing on. They call it an ephod, Right? But let's be fair, he, he was almost naked. She had reason to say that. You know, I hear there's a lot of Pentecostal churches, I'm going to dance like David danced. I'm like, I'm not sure we, we're supposed to do that. But uh, he didn't take time to dress, and so Michael, his wife, said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his service, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Imagine calling the king a base fellow. And just to make the point about Jew Jewish exuberance and celebratory moments, David answers her this way, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father. <laughs> and he said, I'll be even more 
undignified than this if I want to. I'm not sure that's an example we're supposed to follow. But to make my point, there was celebration going on because Jews do that kind of thing. Most cultures do. So I think there's ample precedent for rejoicing in times of blessing and healing. The ark returned and the king rejoiced. The Messiah came and the people would surely rejoice before the Lord. And yet, Luke speaks not a word on the subject of community celebrations. There should have been those festivals down the street that you see, you know, with the big paper mache saints and stuff and they're pinning stuff on. There should have been something like that going on. But you, you would expect to hear about that, but Luke doesn't talk about that. But they had to go home. You had to know that families would rejoice. Like, he actually healed you? You know, they come back. But the passage takes this other turn. Luke doesn't go there. Now, you would expect, if this was a novel, you would expect to read the ancillary parts of this other thing, the description that you always want more of. But the Word of God says, no, this is where I'm turning your attention. In some ways, it seems to me, if this were the first time I read this passage and other passages like it from the Gospels, that Jesus takes what seems to be an unexpected turn. They're following him. And he says, but I must preach elsewhere. After all the healing and freeing, he chooses to proceed with one more work, one more objective in mind. He goes out to preach. And so we read this in verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. I know you're trying to keep me here. I love you for it. I love that you love me and that you come to me as the source of your healing. But I have come for another purpose. i got to preach the word of God in the countryside. Friends, there are any number of ancillary reasons why the Lord came into the earth. You know, other reasons. He came to heal. He definitely did that. But that was to show who he was. He came to supply the needy with the things they needed. But his purpose in coming was simple. It was to preach. That's what he said. Preaching, friends, is and was and ever will be the power of God unto salvation. It is about preaching. You know, other religions have things, but they don't, they're not characterized by the preaching the way the Christian church must be. And if it's not, shame on that church. Go back to preaching. For this purpose you came. This is the purpose. We have a God who wants to be proclaimed with human voices. So we may be healed, and praise God that some of us have been. We may be freed from spiritual torment, and praise God that some of us have been. We may be blessed with any number of miraculous benefits from the Lord, but his purpose is to preach. Friends, let me tell you something. The preaching of the word of God dispels demonic spirits. They want, it's like dumping acid on them. We may remember from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus called the twelve to himself. He called the twelve apostles, and this is what he said to the twelve. He said, these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was an orderly thing. Later they would go to the Samaritans, right? But he said this, go out there, and as you go, preach. There's a sermon series for you. As you go, preach. Open your mouths and say something other than your blessed opinions about everything. As you go preach and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. People will all love you for it and gather around you and not let you leave, right? Isn't that what happens when you do that? They say, let's get away from this crazy person. And eventually that happens here as well. But friends, preacher, preaching is the believer's first commission. As you go, 
preach. It's the principal part of worship. Friends, there's several parts of worship, but without preaching, it's not fully worship. God wants to be proclaimed in understandable words. I've always told you this, and I stand by it. The Reformation was a reformation of literacy. We always say, oh, in the Middle Ages, no one could read. Guess what? It wouldn't matter. There was nothing to read. If you had something to read, it would be very expensive. You'd have to have a copyist put it down on leather vellum, and then later on parchment. It took a lot of work to get something written. Rich people had stuff written. Poor people didn't. Remember when Luther hung the 95 Theses on the door? The Wittenberg Castle door, October 31st, 1517? Do you know a year later, it was reproduced in every language of Western Europe and was distributed to everybody? Now, why was that? Because they finally had a printing press and could print this stuff, but there was nothing to read. They said, this'll print. This'll make good reading. So they put that out there. And it went all over the place, and here we are, the Protestant church. It was about literacy, friends. The word spread fast that way. That's why God had it written down. So it's the believer's first commission. It's the principal part of worship. And I've heard many times that there are other modes and other mechanisms for leading a soul to Christ. And I'm here to say that that is demonstrably and emphatically untrue. There is one way to Christ. Receive him by the word. No one comes to God apart from the word of God being spoken to him. I'm quite certain by now that you've heard that the great saint Francis of Assisi very famously said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And we always say, oh, isn't that beautiful? First of all, I mean no disrespect to Francis, although he was quite an eccentric son of a gun, but um, he certainly gave all for his cause, and I respectfully, but I respectfully disagree with him. And as a side note, I would challenge you to source that statement. I've been unable to connect it with Francis of Assisi other than a bunch of preachers saying that it's that. I, I, I see not where it's written. Maybe you can help me with that. I have not found it sourced to him at all. But even so, I wouldn't direct you to Francis as a useful example for you to emulate. Um, giving all you have to the poor will almost always earn you praise. People don't say, boy, I hate that guy. He gave me everything he had. No one says that. It's unlikely that you'll earn criticism or hatred by giving it all. But having said all of this, I'll remind the church that the proclaimed gospel isn't like that. Not everyone is happy to receive it. The proclaimer may receive some accolades from his hearers, but the duty to preach is more likely to come with persecution and consternation and ridicule. That's what the book of Acts is about. The apostles keep going to jail because the authorities don't want to hear the gospel, right? Ask any Chinese or Sudanese or Cuban or Canadian evangelical pastor, and I am so sorry I have to add Canadians to that list. Used to be a free country. Friends, remember something about the First Amendment. I'm the first one to say, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear any nasty speech, all right? But I don't want to take you right away to speak nasty things if you want to. The reason being, you don't need an amendment to say nice things. There's no law that says... We want everyone to be free to say nice things. No, freedom of speech means you get to say things that are disagreeable and offensive and even seditious if you want to. And if we don't start speaking, we lose that right. So I'm very careful about that. It's precisely because the spoken word does the work that the devil has chosen to oppose it so vehemently. Oh, don't use words, just be very nice. That's more likely to draw someone to you than it is to Christ. 
It's the word that does the work. It's the word that saves. It's the word that changes hearts. It's the word alone that receives, or rather reveals the nature and purposes and reality of God. It's the word that does all that. And if the saints can be deceived into thinking that there are friendlier approaches to salvation, we can be shamed or scared into using other methods. And it seems to me that's what happens to us. It was James, the Lord's brother, who said this very thing, lay aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now in saying that, friends, I in no way am diminishing our personal witness in exposing the nature of a loving God to the unbeliever. Don't anyone leave here today and say, oh, the pastor says we don't have to do nice things. I'll be nice to people. All we got to do is say uh, offensive things, make the gospel as offensive as possible, and just go out there and do it. Let's try to keep two cogent thoughts in our minds at one time and not be like the world. Of course, you have to emulate Christ in your life. Believers must play the part of disciples in every aspect of their lives. We must be loving husbands to our wives, faithful wives to our husbands. We must be caring authorities in the lives of our children that we're stewards over. We must be charitable to strangers and to any who are in need. We must be loving and caring and nurturing to one another as brothers and sisters of a great household. We must renounce sin and visibly live as those who have renounced it. We have to do all those things. There should be no argument about that. But with all these things in place, if I were to heal the sick, friends, if I were to cast out demons, give all we have to the poor, they would still be eternally sick and eternally possessed of evil and eternally poor if they've not internalized the proclaimed word of God for themselves. Being healed of your physical infirmities is not the same as being saved for eternity. It was the word, friends who was in the beginning with God. It was the word that created all things. It was the word that brought light to dark minds and life to dead souls. And there's simply no substitute for preaching it. For how else will they hear? How else will they hear? It seems to me someone else asked that question. Oh yes, the Apostle Paul. He said to the Romans, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? I'm sending you right now. Everybody's sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet. You should see my feet. (laughs) Things of beauty. Except for that under the nail thing. No. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of, of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Friends, not everyone likes good things. The gospel is a good thing. It's good news. That's what it means, by the way. Now, we all all know that not everyone's equally gifted, and I'll say not equally called to preach. I want to make some distinctions for you this morning. I'm aware of that reality, but consider this. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness, and we read this. This goes back to Isaiah, but it's reiterated in the New Testament as the fulfillment of what the prophet said all those centuries ago, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Friends, we live in a spiritual wilderness. I don't think I'd receive one argument about that from anyone here today. To preach is to give voice to a thing. It's to make it known. It's to uncover something, to present it, or to publish it. Now consider the Greek here. The New Testament is written in Greek. What we have here before us is a translation. Sometimes going back to the Greek is helpful. 
And in this case, I believe it is. The critical word in the New Testament generally translated as preach is the word evangelizzo. I always give it a little Italian twist. I think it, that sounds good. Evangelizzo. Sound like anything? Evangelizzo, right? The lexicon says of evangelizzo that it is almost always used of the good news concerning the Son of God as proclaimed in the gospel. That's word number one, evangelizzo. Aren't you glad I wrote it down for you? A second word is Caruso. Now, in fairness, there was a great uh, Italian tenor named Enrico Caruso. And I always thought that that was interesting, that Caruso means preach. Caruso, the lexicon says of this word that it means to be a herald, or in general, to proclaim. Now, I, I point out both of these words because they're both present in our text this morning. In one construction, Luke uses Evangelizzo, and in the other, he uses Caruso. Now, why do you suppose that would be? It, it's because there are subtle differences in meaning and application. In verse 43, where Jesus says, I must preach, Luke uses the word Evangelizzo. In verse 44, the very next verse, he uses the word Caruso. Now, I'm probably not qualified completely to comment authoritatively on why the writer chooses these words as he did and what exactly is the different emphasis of each. But the first word, Evangelizzo, refers to an announcement. And some of your translations may not say preach. It might say announce. Some of the older versions just said announce. And the second word, Caruso, is what we think of when we speak of preaching as I'm preaching to you from the pulpit in sort of a formal way with a text before me and a, and a plot laid out for where we're going to go in this text. So that's more the Caruso of preaching. And the Evangelizzo of preaching is what everyone does when they just are a voice out there in the wilderness as they go preaching in their lives. It means speaking up. And I say this because the first, in the first sense, Jesus speaks of going on a circuit tour from city to city, proclaiming a thing, kind of like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this, but kind of like the thing Billy Graham did in his day. He just went around to different places and preached, right? That's kind of what he's talking about there. I must go to the other cities and preach the word. It's sort of like going from city to city and posting bulletins on trees and telephone poles and bulletin boards. You're getting the word out, right? And that's the sense I get from Evangelizzo. In the second sense, where we read that he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, it, that's the word Caruso, it's a more formalized sense, like what I'm doing here on Sunday mornings. For clarification, I would say that the ordinary believer is to give voice to truth as he goes throughout his life. And the pastor or teacher in the church has the more formal calling of preaching and proclaiming truths to the saints gathered for that purpose. It is a very good thing to invite people uninitiated with the Christian faith, unassociated with the Christ of the, of the Scriptures, and invite them here on Sunday morning to hear the word preached. That's how you get saved. That's not to say they can't get saved by the evangelizing you do right there in a conversation with them. But it's got to be the word. Far as I can tell, it's the word that does the work. I see no other example in the New Testament. In the second sense, where we read that he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee, that's more, like I say, the formalized version of it. And so the calling of a pastor teacher is to proclaim in the sense of Caruso, but the call of the saint in the pew is to announce, to give voice to the truths that have been given to him as he travels along the way in his daily life. Just as Moses said, we should speak of these things when we rise up 
when we lie down, and when we walk by the way. It's who we are. Now, I found an interesting construction in, in this principle in the writings of Ian Murray. And he was writing on the great evangelical controversies of the last century in a book that I and Donnie and Dennis have been reading. It was Dennis's book he handed around. And it was a good tour. It was something I, I didn't know the details of, the, the great controversies in, e, in the evangelical world from 1950 to 2000. Very interesting. Very troubling. But Murray says on the great evangelical controversies of the last century, he wrote this phrase, and I, I quote it here because it stuck in my mind from the moment I read it. He said, what has nearly been forgotten today is that the whole Reformation struggle centered, as all great controversies center, on what it means to be a Christian, right? That's why the Reformation started. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you get there? And then he wrote this, evangelicals, that's us, right? Evangelicals, and then he writes in parentheses, literally, gospelers. Evangelicals are gospelers. Evangelical means gospel, or evangel means gospel. That's the, that's the word in the New Testament translated gospel, evangel. We are gospelers. That's who we are. And so he wrote, they left the Roman communion because the true way of salvation was not taught there. And a gospeler would know that because he'd read it for himself. Or he'd hear it preached on Sunday by someone who stuck to the text and didn't do the famous three-point sermon where you read the text, depart from the text, and never return to the text. The three-point sermon, very famous. Friends, in order for the Christian to fulfill his personal evangelical calling, he must be a gospeler. The word for gospel in the New Testament is the noun form of the verb to preach, right? So evangelizo is the verb form, and evangelion is the noun, translated gospel, the evangel. And notice evangel is part of the word of angel. An angel is ultimately a messenger. We are messengers, friends. In a sense, we are angels, not in some celestial sense. The evangelical is called such because his very life is infused with a message. The foolishness of the message preached, Paul called it. Our life is infused with a message. We heard the message, and it changed us for the good. You know, I go around today, and I see these political signs on people's houses. Um, Pray for hope. Work for change. And I'm like... Change to what? Am I the one who's supposed to change? Maybe you should change. Maybe turn the sign around to your living room window. You know, change for what? Friends, the gospel changed us in a good way, in an eternal way, and it can't be unchanged. If I never say another prayer about my or your salvation, you'll be as, as saved in eternity as you are right now if you're saved in the first place. So if you're going to make a change, make it be a substantive change. The gospel causes change change. We are infused with a message that changed us for the better. The evangelical is a product of his message, and he knows it. I just always found that very strange, but so simple and perfect, really. I was told a story, and because it was that story, because it was God's story, and because I was blessed with the ability to believe that story, my whole life changed forever. We are gospelers, We're infused with a message, and we should cherish the opportunity to voice that message in other searching hearts. The evangelical is a product of his message, and even at those times when he's not paying attention to this fact, his soul and his thoughts and his fondest hopes 
are tied up in the notion that he's called to speak his faith today or speak his faith out loud as the very center of his life's mission on earth. It's the thing that ought to be at the tip of our tongues because we're gospelers. And so I would say to you today what Christ said to the 12. He said, as you go, preach. That's who we are. We are preachers and teachers. Peter said it this way. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim. Now, how many of us stop there? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a chosen generation. I'm a, I'm a royal priest. I'm a holy nation. No, 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 no. That's the beginning. The application is that you may proclaim. That's why he made you holy, that you may proclaim. That's why he made you royal, that you may proclaim a royal message. That's what it's for that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hallelujah. A gospeler must proclaim the gospel. Or do something else. But don't say I'm a gospeler. It's kind of like I used to say, some of the churches that don't preach the gospel ought to take the, the cross down and put a pair of antlers up there. It's really the Elks Club. You know, one church I came out of, I said, boy, they really ought to take the cross down off of this place. And I went out and I looked, and there was a weather vane up there, you know? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which way is the wind blowing? Ah, that's what I'll preach. That's what they want to hear. I was inspired this week by an article by Andrea Sue Peterson. Do you ever read Andrea Sue? <laughs> I've loved... Are you making a smirk like, that's a bad thing? No, <laughs> no Diane said, yeah, I read. But... Um, She's very good. She's back. She's really uh, well taught. She has a seminary degree, and she's reformed. And um, she says some things sometimes, sometimes really just in a cute way. But she wrote something this week in, a, in an article called Back to the Word. Now, if you go to World Magazine, you turn it over. Do you read magazines backwards? That's what I do. No matter what magazine it is, I start from the back. I don't know why. Um, maybe because I'm Jewish at heart. They always read backwards. But um, if you turn to the last one, the last article will be an editorial by Marvin Olasky, and it's pretty good, but Andrea Sue's, she's my favorite, so I go to that. And I haven't talked about her in a long time, and it isn't like everything she writes, I just gobble up, it's just, I like this. She called it Back to the Word. And it made the point, I think we all know, you know how sometimes you know a thing, but we like to be reminded? Peter said, I'm not speaking to instruct you, but to remind you. I'll never be negligent to keep reminding you of these things. So we all know this, but we perhaps not utilized it in our own personal evangelizing. And the sermon today is about preaching. It's about evangelizing, right? And by evangelizing, I mean conversing with unbelievers on any level for any reason. There ought to always be some sort of point there for delivering the message that has made our lives. Most conversations, or rather most conversions, friend, most conversions will begin with conversations, right? Um, they might not begin with a conversation. Someone might stumble into a church house and hear the word of God never having conversed and be saved. That could happen. They might read it in the scriptures. That could happen. But most, it seems to me, is person to person. Someone comes with the message, with the gospel. The gospeler comes with the gospel, right? So most conversions start with conversations. And the conversation will be, be between believers and unbelievers. That's usually what it will be, right? And insofar as we're an equitable people who believe, I think, that everyone has a right to an opinion and a right to voice their opinions, I think that um, we're seeing 
even that dis disintegrate in our society today. Some people are trying to force other people not to use their opinions because they're saying they're offensive. Do you know there's actually signed legislation in Australia that you can't pray on certain subjects? No, it's true. Uh, you can't pray for someone to be converted from homosexuality to, to um, heterosexuality. You can't pray that. I don't know how you enforce that, but it's actually, I'm told it's actually a law. Read that in World Magazine, too. But um, <clears throat> So we're seeing this idea that everyone has an opinion and, and, uh, and they're all equally allowed in the marketplace. Let me tell you, I believe that. All of our opinions are equally allowed in the marketplace, but they're not all equally important or equally valid. And they're certainly not equally true, right? So remember that. And I can tell you from history that our silence will only accelerate and exacerbate that movement that's trying to silence us. Our silence will help that movement take hold. Silence is death to the evangelical church, friends. Even the gospel has no power if it's not, if it's concealed. The gospel hidden has no power. You know, there was a time way back in the, in the days of the kings, in the books of the kings of the Old Testament, where the word of God had been lost to them, the written word of God. And under the leadership of King Josiah, they were renovating the temple. So they had the contractors in there, and they were renovating the temple, you know, taking down some walls, refurbishing the place. And what do you think the contractors found? The old, dusty, hidden away, written copy of the Word of God. It had been out of circulation for several generations. And so King Josiah read it, and he realized, you know, these were the people of God, and they were living on tradition. Traditions can be good, but traditions can be very, very bad. They're things of men. And, they, and he found they were so far from the original course that God had given them to walk on. He tore his clothes, that's what you did in those days, to show, I repent. And he started issuing all these reforms in his society as the king. In those days, if you were the political king, you were also the ecclesiastical king. No separation of church and state. It was a total ecclesiology. Um, we, or um, ecclesiocracy, I should say. But she, but she wrote this article called Back to the Word, and it's about what we say when we're evangelizing or when we're walking by the way, conversing about whatever we might be conversing about and letting the gospel come out of us. And I, I can tell you um, that without doing this, silence becomes death for the evangelical church, and even the gospel is concealed. And so I would, I would postulate two prevailing conditions in society. All right, And I think you'll agree, I've said it many times. One is that the curse of God from Romans 1 regarding the depraved mind has come upon our society. Now why do I say that? It's almost inconceivable in a conversation today that an opponent will concede and say, you know, you're right. You've reasoned it out and now I see that you're right on this subject and I'm wrong. That almost doesn't happen. That's because people don't reason anymore. And that's because there's a curse of God upon a land who is given is given up right thinking for so long he doesn't let them have access to it. Romans 1, go read it for yourselves tonight. I believe that's the prevailing judgment of God upon the world today. Simple things, male and female, we're not sure. We're not sure anymore. Is the sky blue? I mean, I'm not really sure anymore. Someone has another opinion, it's equally valid as mine. You know, this is where we are. That's, friends, that's lunacy. The gospel clarifies thinking, though. It takes away the depraved mind. So Peterson writes this, she writes... That's Andrea Sue Peterson. She writes, To our language-degraded contemporaries for whom words are whores and listed to mean anything they please sound 
counter-argumentation avails nothing. In other words, the guy who wins the debate isn't the guy who wins the debate anymore. We don't think our way through lives anymore. We feel like blind men. And so as a remedy, she suggests to limit our own opinions and to quote directly from Jesus' own words on the various subjects. And so Donnie and I have just begun to put together subjects with companion verses to memorize and always give the reference. You know, Matthew 25, 29 or something. Always give the reference. Don't be the one that says, it's in the Bible, I don't know where, but it's in there. Everybody says that about everything. A guy told me the other day, you know, I'm a worshipful guy, I'm a, I'm a spiritual guy, but I don't go to church because I read the Bible a couple of times, and as soon as I read that Jesus said, you don't have to go to church, I didn't go anymore. I said, oh, that's, that's great, except he never said that. <laughs> I don't know where you get You know, people say things, they think it's grounded somewhere, it's not, and they think you can't know, because who would really read the Bible, right? They think you can't know. So let me give you an example of, of, of what I'm saying here. I might say in a conversation about socialism, right? That's a big conversation today, socialism, that it's historically the most powerful force for evil in the world. Friends, we spent my whole generation's life's blood in what was called a Cold War, and it was all the Western countries that used to be called Christendom that made a league, a NATO league, against Russia and China because they were spreading this deadly totalitarian philosophy. And now it's like socialism's a good thing. Now it's just sharing things equally and Rather than say all that, because for some reason, bringing someone up to date on historical facts doesn't change anybody. Nobody concedes when you tell them the truth. They just think it's your opinion and they move on. And they have an opinion and theirs is as important as yours, right? So rather than saying that the Western world through NATO spent most of my generation's lifetime fighting against the scourge of socialism, I can say from experience that reason is a futile defense against the depraved mind. But Scripture, friends, pierces it. Scripture still carries a great measure of authority. And so rather than voice my opinion on the subject of socialism, I might just say, Jesus didn't support it. Now let me tell you, the the word socialism was not even coined in Jesus' day. It was many, many centuries later. But the principles of it were there. And so Jesus said this, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Friends, you can make what you want of that, but you can't say it's socialistic. Right? And then you say, well, that's Matthew twenty-five, twenty-nine. I found that even when my informed opinion fails to convince the opinions of others, The opinions of Jesus give pause to almost anyone. Now, Jesus doesn't technically have opinions because he knows the truth. When you know the truth, you don't have to have an opinion. It's not my opinion. It is my opinion that God exists and created the world, but it happens to be a true fact of absolute truth that can't be torn down. Now, the great controversy of our day is this gender intersectionality thing, right? Let me just say a couple things about it. Intersectionality is not a real word. And it's not a real condition. But a depraved mind has embraced it as a real condition. It's sort of you're, you're constantly in this changing environment about the basic functions of your life and your body and your spirit. You could be a man, you could be a woman, you could be both. I mean, it's obviously not a real thing to any thinking person. And we know a person that thinks that is just confused. And I have sympathy for confused people. 
But that's a big deal today. The liberal on the street today is not moved by, by reasoned argument or scientific biological conclusions. Friend, we might as well take the hospitals down if we don't know the basics about our biology, right? But rather, the, the liberal on the street is feeling his way through life. And they've been convinced that a person can feel his way, feel his way through on his personal gender identity. And that to oppose his conclusion is mean and unchristian-like. And so they might tell you that they might tell you it's, it's very unchristian of you to say that I'm, I'm not a woman when I, when I really believe I am. So hold back your opinion, because it won't have the effect you want it to. But you might say, well, I just adhere to what Jesus said on the subject. And Jesus said God created man in his image, and God created them male and female. And say it's from Genesis 1.27. People love to believe that they're on the side of Jesus. I've had my most ungodly friends tell me when I'm not acting like a good Christian. They like to think they're on the side of Jesus and that their wise and loving adherence of his teachings, even though they choose to disagree with him on matters of origins and natural sciences, evolution, right? They want to disagree with Jesus. Can you imagine being at the last judgment and saying, yes, Lord, I have faith in you and all that you did and taught, except for that one thing about the origins of man where you said you called us into being. I think, I think you're mistaken and you, ought to, and you ought to check your science on that. You need to go back and read Origin of Species from Charles Darwin. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? But what did Jesus say on the subject of origins? What did Jesus say on the subject? We say, well, Jesus was good theologically, but he didn't know anything about science, right? What did he say to Nicodemus? John 3.12, he said, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'm the Lord of both. You don't pick me apart. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The Lord claims authority in both realms, heaven and earth. And this leave it out there. That's John 3.12. Go check it for yourself. Perhaps she's right. I think we always knew this, though. Let the word be proclaimed. It takes some rehearsal, though. It'll take some failure and maybe some humiliation. But remember, conversion is in the hand of God, the Holy Spirit, anyway. The best you can do is be a gospeler and put his word out there. That's the best you can do. The word of God is not a blunt instrument, friends. It can be a sharp instrument, though. We read this from Hebrews. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God can pierce through the dumbness of our depraved minds where our opinions will never do that. They'll just be this blunt instrument banging against a brick wall. But the sword of the Spirit goes in there and discerns and severs between soul and spirit. It's a great tool. It's a great reminder. And you could just leave it at that in a conversation. And now they thought they were on Jesus' side because they're nice. And that's, of course, what Jesus is ultimately, just a nice guy. That's what the world thinks, right? No, he's got a piercing intellect. He speaks reality. He speaks reality into existence. The word still does that, friends, with souls. And when you're accused of being judgmental, simply say, it's not the judgment of men that I fear. For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a good thing to end a conversation with. And when you're accused of imposing your religion on others, simply say what Paul said to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Where's your faith? Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to renew the church with the power to wield the sharp two-edged sword of your word, O Lord, to great evangelistic benefit, O Lord, and to building the church again from the ground up, in Jesus' name, amen.